morning, everyone. You guys doing well this day? Good. It's wonderful to see you. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. And TJ, you want to come up? TJ, it's kind of a long chapter, so I'm going to have TJ read it for us. Um, and by the way, to all the ladies, happy Women's Day. Do you guys know it's Women's Day, March 8th? So I actually, so I grew up in Albania, and in Albania, there, we didn't celebrate Mother's Day. The same, I don't know if there even is a Mother's Day in Albania. So I, I don't, if you, I don't, I have no idea when Mother's Day is in America. I have no idea. I call my mom on March 8th every year. And, and every March 8th, we would gather, the church would gather, and we'd hand out flowers to all the women as they would come in. Just a really beautiful day. So anyways, you guys are awesome. We're so grateful for you. You ready? Okay, he's going to read all of Acts chapter 12. Okay. All right, Acts chapter 12. Um, okay, here it goes. Now about the ti- that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it, was, it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that that was done by the angel, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate, that leads to the city, which opened to, the, to, to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many gather, were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When, he, when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Sorry. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, uh, that it was so. So they said it was his angel. Uh, now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea and Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but he came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, 
They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took them, uh, took them John, whose surname was Mark. Awesome. Thanks, TJ. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, for these stories. And I ask, Lord, that this morning you would open up our hearts that we would hear you, that we would kind of put to the side um, distractions, burdens, and we would just take this hour to engage with you, to worship you, to love you well. Thank you. Amen. Amen. I love this story. I love this passage, but it's, it, there's a lot going on. It's really long. And there's a bunch of characters in the passage, and some of them even have the same name, so that can be kind of confusing. So I kind of want to go through all the characters really quickly, and then as we go through the story, we'll be able to kind of identify who's who. Sound like a plan? Okay. The first character I want to look at is Herod. He's the first guy mentioned in the story. This Herod is actually the grandson of the Herod who tried to kill Jesus when he was born. Make sense? This is Herod Agrippa. So he was born and raised in Rome and was sent uh, in his 40s, 50s to kind of come and rule over uh, Jerusalem, rule over Israel as a Roman province. And it's interesting, the story kind of kicks off with Herod persecuting the church and it ends with Herod uh, being struck down by God. And what I love about the Bible, what I love about Luke is this is just another case in point of the Bible being true, that it's a trustworthy document that we can hold to and believe in. You can actually read in historical documents about this day that Herod died. If you read the historian Josephus in his book, The Jewish Antiquities, you can read the entire account of this moment where Herod is putting on these glittering robes and he's being praised by the crowd and they say, the voice of a God, not of a man, and he totally takes it in. And according to the Jewish Antiquities, instantly that moment he's somehow struck in his gut and feels something awful and says it's because he calls it out he goes god has struck me down according to the historian josephus and then spends five days slowly dying of internal worm death oh awful but again what i love about this is that this is something where it places this isn't this isn't a fantasy fairy tale book these are real people that we have outside external evidence from the scriptures to point that they were real, they lived, and they died like Herod. And there's accounts of this that kind of even give a little bit more flavor and detail. So I love that Luke kind of grounds the stories here and here. And you can even see that he's doing this grounding intentionally. Look at verse 12. The first thing he says is about that time. So he's grounding it. He's saying, hey, when Herod's ruling... When this is what's happening, here's what's going on. And it's kind of giving us a marker in a timeline. Okay, so that's enough about Herod. Herod, bad guy, not a great guy. Here are other characters in the story. Uh, there's two James in the story. 
There's James at the beginning, James, son of Zebedee. He's John's brother, one of the disciples. And then at the end of the story, there's another James, James, the brother of Jesus. So Peter, so James, one, is killed at the beginning of the story. At the end of the story, Peter is at uh, Mary's house and says, hey, go tell this to James, and that's Jesus' brother. And we see him later in the story. He becomes the head of the church of Jerusalem. And we presume Peter goes off to continue to hide. Okay, so there's two James in the story. There's also two Johns in the story. The first John is James, the first one. Oh boy, this is already confusing. <laughs> uh, we'll call them the sons of Zebedee. There's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're in the story. And then also is this guy called John Mark who's in the story. And lots of scholars think he's actually the person who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Okay? So two Johns, two James, one Peter. We all know Peter. Numbskull. We love him. Uh, there's Mary. This is John Mark's mom who's hosting the prayer meeting at the end. And Rhoda, who's the servant girl at Mary's house. That's everybody. We all on the same page? Okay. Let's dive into the story. So Herod starts persecuting Christians, and we don't know why. We don't know what kicks this off. Uh, but the first thing that he does is he captures a bunch of them, and then one of the Christians he kills is this guy James, the son of Zebedee. And this is a tragic moment for the church. You've probably heard me or other preachers say that Jesus had crowds that would follow him and then 12 disciples, and within those 12 disciples, he had three. And the three were... Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And we see this relationship developing. I'm just in Luke, I mean, I'm not going to go to other authors, but just within Luke, Luke 5, we see this is the story where Jesus has Peter. They've been out fishing all night, have caught nothing. Jesus has him throw his net over the side of the boat first thing in the morning. And Peter's like, okay, Mr. Non-Fisherman guy, whatever. And he, but he obeys, he throws it over. And they're trying to pull all the fish up, and their boat is sinking because of all the fish that they've caught. So it says, and they called their partners, James and John, over to come and help. So James and John come over. I mean, they've known each other. They probably grew up on the Sea of Galilee together. These three are tight, tight, tight-knit. And then Luke 9, the transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he calls three men to go with him. Peter, James, and John. And they go up and they see Jesus transfigured in this beautiful moment. And then here suddenly, out of the blue, chapter 9, or chapter 12, James is killed. This is a dark moment for the church. This is a challenging thing. And just, it happens so abruptly. Look at this. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is political for Herod. This is unjust. This is horrific and awful. And he sees, I mean, Herod Agrippa, he's trying to establish power, right? He's an outsider, kind of. His grandpa ruled, but he's from Rome. And he sees, oh, I killed James. That made the Jews happy. Great, I'll grab more of them. This is awesome. And so he grabs Peter as well. And we can see in this first little section, um, verse 3, he saw it please the Jews and proceeded to rest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So after Passover, there's a week celebration called unleavened bread. And it's a holy week, and you don't execute people during a holy week. 
So, verse five, 4, And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, which is the kind of name of the whole holiday, to bring him out to the people to be executed. It doesn't say to be executed, but that's the inference. He s- killed James. Now he's got Peter. But it's during Holy Week, so we're going to hold him during Holy Week, and then we'll bring him out to the people, and then we'll execute him. How does the church respond? Let's look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I just, ima- just want to paint a picture how tense this moment is for the church. They're gathered. They're, they're on their knees, crying out, seeking for deliverance for Peter. They've already seen James killed. And they're gathered and they're praying and they're hoping and they're petitioning the Lord, save Peter, please. And prayer wasn't a last resort for them. This is the only resort. I think we're used to here having some kind of a justice system that's fair and balanced where we, where we think it is anyways. We can petition we can, we can hire a lawyer. We can do all these things. We, they had none of that. The king has captured one of them and is going to execute them. We pray. We pray. So let's go into the prison break. This is like, imagine like a heist movie. Do, 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 do. That's why I don't write music. Okay. I love Luke's detailed description. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out, this is right at the end of the festival, the last night before the festival is over, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. And by the way, I, I skipped over this earlier, but Peter has assigned four, four squads of guards to guard him. Each squad has four guards. And they would each do about six-hour shifts. And then they would have round-the-clock coverage. There would be two guards that would be chained up next to the prisoner, and then two guards guarding the way out of the prison. Like, almost, almost impossible to escape from. Uh, two guards to protect people from coming in, and two guards with him to protect the prisoner from escaping. And these guards were really, really motivated to make sure no one escaped, because if a prisoner escaped, they were subjected to the same sentence that the prisoner was going to be subjected to. Which we see, these guys later, they get... Anyways, we'll get there. Okay. So... Uh, all right, talked about the prison guards. They're sleeping. Two, there's two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door regarding the prison. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. Um, verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened up for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. I love the urgency in this angel's voice. Look at verse 7. Get up quickly. Time is of the essence. I think sometimes when I think of the heavenly realm, when I think of angels, I think of these beings that kind of float outside time. Peter, arise. 
in your own time, you know? This will all work out no matter what. I am here. No, the angel's like, get up. Hey, hey, genius. Shh. Okay, get, what are you, not clothes? Get dressed. Come on. We got to go. We got to go. And they get up and they go. And this is more the image I see of angels in the scriptures than the kind of this like out of body, crazy, everything's under control experience. I mean, if you think about, you think about Daniel 10, when the angel shows up to Daniel and says, your prayer was heard three weeks ago, and I've been trying to get to you ever since. I've been held up by the prince of Persia. There's so many aspects and parts of the Bible that make so much more sense if we think about the cosmos as a battleground rather than just a preordained, like, spinning machine that just happens. There's forces at work fighting against good and evil. It's crazy. It's crazy. Man. So, I'll get to that later. Peter's chains fall off without disturbing the two guards chained next to him. They stay asleep. Then he walks past two other guards, and the iron gate to the city opens up. Incredible. Let's move on to the prayer meeting. Okay. Then Peter escapes, realizing what's happened. He runs to Mary's house, uh, and she's uh, John Mark's mom. And there were many gathered together, and they were, what were they doing? They were praying. I don't know how long they've been praying. I don't know what part of the week Peter was taken prisoner, but the church is gathered on their knees praying. And I love that Peter knows that's exactly what they're doing. And he goes, and I know who's host the weekly prayer meeting. I'm going to go to her house. And he shows up. And I love, <laughs> I mean, and then there's this great exchange where he's knocking the door and Rhoda, the servant girl, hears Peter's voice and freaks out and runs back. And she doesn't even open the door, which is amazing. And then freaks, you know, and then runs back and tells them, Peter's been set free. He's at the door. And they're praying such fantastic prayers. They don't even believe when God answers them. Isn't that incredible? I want my prayers to be that way. Where I'm praying such lofty, incredible prayers that I can't hardly believe it when God moves. They say, no, no, really. And they're still hearing this knocking at the door. They're like, well, someone's at the door. And by the way, being a Christian at this time, it's not like, I don't have time for a story. I'm going to tell a story. Okay, my dad used to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. He did it for a college job. I worked at Safeway. <laughs> and he, uh, he had felt like God had given him uh, they only had so many Bibles to hand out, and this is, he, he's in the USSR, um, and they started out in Moscow, and he went to one of the state-sponsored churches, because that's where you'd meet the real Christians, and then some real Christians saw him and said, hey, we're having a birthday party later if you want to come over. Now, birthday parties were how Christians would gather in the Soviet Union, because they would gather, and they would spend all day worshiping and praying and singing there'd be sermons and prayers. It's an all-day affair because otherwise they weren't allowed to gather. So anytime there was a birthday, they were all together. And so dad got taken to one of these birthday parties. And the guys that take him don't know he's a Bible smuggler. They don't know that he's got a copy of the scriptures in Russian in his, in his jacket. And they could be sent to prison for life if they're caught with him. So dad goes, attends the birthday party, and is just praying, Lord, who do I give this Bible to? 
who do I give it to? And feels like the hostess, Mary, is the one. She's running around making sure everyone's taken care of. And so when she's up and she's in the kitchen getting something, and I don't know if you've ever been in a tiny communist kitchen. That's what I grew up in, in these tiny apartments. I mean, it's literally like that long and this wide. Tiny. She's in one of these kitchens, and Dad goes in there and says, I have a gift from God for you, and hands her a full Bible in Russian. <laughs> he says his face was bruised by how hard she kicked him. Just <laughs> I think of this story every time before I buy a new Bible, by the way. I probably have like 15 Bibles on my shelf. She was over the moon. They would literally rip out Gospels of the Bible and hand them out during the week to people and spread the scriptures. Man, we're so privileged here. And then there was a knock on the door. The whole party stops. You have no idea who the secret police are. You don't know if someone who was there who left earlier, because a few people had, had gone and reported if it was the secret police. And my dad describes this woman trying to hide her new treasure anywhere in this tiny kitchen. Up here, no, they'll find it. Up here, no. And finally decides on a basket of laundry sitting on the floor, puts it in, throws some laundry on top, straightens herself up, and goes to the door. And it was just people who left earlier wanted to come back. That's what I'm imagining at this knock at the door. This is a tense moment for the church. It's tense. But they go and they open it. And Peter's there. <laughs> Your prayers have been answered. Man, how good would that have felt? Look what he says. Uh, Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. Can you imagine just Peter, like, you just escaped from jail? You're like, hello? <laughs> like, let me in. He was standing. Um, Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, shh, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. James, the brother of Jesus, who's he heading up the church. Then he departed and went to another place. We don't see Peter for a while now. Next time we see him, he's in Antioch. So we don't know if he fled the city, but clearly he was not out of the woods just because he got out of prison. Look at verse 18. Now when day came, I love Luke, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers <laughs> of what had become of Peter. Then after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea and spent time there. This is another indicator to me that the Bible's true. These soldiers were, were real men. They were held to an account for losing a prisoner. Herod Agrippa was a real man who lost a real prisoner named Peter in a miraculous way that he could not account for and so executed the guards. Miracles happen. It's incredible. God moves with the urgency of an angel and the prayer of the people. God moves. And then, 
Herod receives praise in just a few verses later from people calling me God, and he's struck down and dies. So that's the story. What does that have to do with you and me? I think if I had to boil down the story into kind of two main things, I would say this story is about prayer and it's about justice. And I want to tackle prayer first. Um, we see people right from the beginning praying for Peter's imprisonment. We see them praying for redemption of the situation. They fully believed that God could act, and they were petitioning God to move in that way, and God answered prayer. Incredible. He moved in an incredible, fantastic way and saved Peter from certain death. Now, what's the catch? I'm pretty sure they prayed for James too, and he died. Can you imagine being John as this is going on? I, John is probably way more spiritual than I, not probably. John was definitely way more spiritual than I am. But if I was in his position, I would just be like, God, you saved my best friend. Why did you not save my brother? I don't get it. You obviously can. Peter got an angel, and my brother got the sword. That's tough. That's tough. And by the way, we don't know this is the case. This is speculation, but I can imagine being there and feeling the weight of losing my brother, and then my best friend gets captured and praying, and then he gets an angel. Praise God. But did our prayers not work the first time? What's, what's going on here? And there, <laughs> then you ask the question, do our prayers even matter? Was God just going to do what he was going to do anyways? There's an entire section of Christianity that believes that what's going to happen is just going to happen. It's just what it is. God ordained it, and this is how it's going to happen, and we pray to just kind of align ourselves with God, and that's it. And there's way smarter people than me that believe that and can make a very good case of that from the scriptures, but I just have a hard time engaging with it. There's this quote by Dallas Willard. He says this. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. It, if God's going to do what he's going to do, why, why pray for him to move if he's just going to do what he's going to do? And if this is what we believe, if, we're just, if we just think that God's going to do what he's going to do, then why pray? What's, why join him in that. And I don't think any of the early Christians were actually seriously considering this question. I don't, I don't think they were saying, well, I wonder if prayer really works or not. It didn't work for James. We see them spending likely days straight praying for deliverance for Peter. That's people who believe in the power of prayer. And I think the, 
the problem with this view that believing that prayer does nothing and that what's going to happen is just going to happen with or without prayer is directly against the teachings of Scripture. And I want to go through just a few passages really quickly. We can throw them up there. The first is Genesis 18, uh, 22 through 23. You guys can write this down, look this up later. This is incredible. Abraham is praying to God over the city of Sodom. And he's saying, Lord, you're, gonna, you're saying you're going to wipe out the city? What if there's 50 righteous people? And Yahweh says, okay, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, I won't wipe out the city. And then Abraham says, okay, Lord, please don't be angry. What if there's 45? And Yahweh says, if there's 45, I won't wipe out the city. And, Mo and Moses, Abraham comes back again and again. What about 40? What about 30? What about if there's 20? What if there's 10 righteous people in the city? And each time God relents again and again and again. We see prayer moving in reality. We see, look at Acts 10, 3. This is, uh, we just read this story. This is about Cornelius, the centurion. An angel of the Lord comes to him and says, your alms and your prayers have risen up as a memorial before God. It's incredible. I think sometimes we think of heaven interrupting earth. We think of we're walking along and then suddenly something incredible happens and oh my gosh, that's heaven touching earth right now. That's amazing. I think our prayers interrupt heaven. Actually, I want you to turn with me to this last one, to Revelation chapter 8. I'm going to read this passage. This is um, the Lamb, Jesus, opening the seven seals, and this is the seventh and final seal, okay? Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Whew. Amazing. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at, at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. This angel takes a censer full of incense and the prayers of all the saints and lays it down before Yahweh on a golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. We see the prayers of the saints lifted up before God. And then God takes action on the earth because of these prayers. These passages the scriptures, the entirety of the scriptures lead us to one conclusion. Prayer changes the world. That's what we get to participate in. This is what we get to do. We get to interrupt heaven with prayer. We get to step out and boldly ask and seek and knock and see the doors opened. What a beautiful story. 
man, think about the tension that's in the room before Peter is arrested, knowing he's going to be executed, and then praying. Just the momentousness of it all. Praying for justice to be done. And then we see justice done. I don't know if they were praying for justice for Herod too, but Herod got justice. He received what he was due. In God's way, in God's timing. But you know what's interesting? There's an interesting juxtaposition about these two characters who receive justice in this passage, Peter and Herod. And both of them, remember in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius falls down at Peter's feet and tries to worship him like a god, and Peter rejects it, says, no, I'm just a man like you. Juxtaposed to Herod, who stands up and receives the praise as God, one is set free from death, and one is killed. It's interesting to see justice working out in this passage. Through prayer, justice prevailed. Through people of God getting on their knees, praying, justice happened in this world. Karl Barth, who's a German theologian, has this great quote on prayer. He said this, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. So good. When we put our hands together, when we pray, when we lift up our petitions, we're fighting in a war. We're stepping out. And we're saying we reject this chaos. We reject injustice. And we petition the Lord to move in a powerful way on this earth today, in our time, right now. Family of God, do you believe this? Oh, man. Prayer is not our last resort when nothing else is working. Prayer is our first option. Prayer is our main weapon against the disorder of this world. So what do we do from here? Where do we go? We pray. We pray. You know, there's, we have, did you guys know we have two regular prayer gatherings in this church? Happen every week. On Monday nights at the Wally's house from 7.30 to 8.15, every week, people gather and pray. You are receiving the blessings of these prayers. These people are praying for you, for this gathering, for our church throughout the week. If you want to be a part of it, go be a part of it. Talk to, talk to anyone. Any one of the leaders, we'll show you where to go. We'll give you an address. We'll text you the time. We'll carpool with you. We get to pray. And every week here, right on that rug at 9.30 a.m., we pray for this gathering of God's people. We pray for God to move in a mighty way every single week. Do you want to be a part of that? Just come 30 minutes early. Link arms with us. Pray with us for what God's doing among this gathering. How cool would it be if 90% of us were here for pre-gathering prayer? Would that be awesome? Then people show up and are like, on the website it said it started at 10. I feel late. Oswald Chambers 
a lot of you have probably uh, used his devotionals over the years. He said this. It's a long quote, so it's on two slides, so give me a minute. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Most of us would prefer, however, to spend our time on doing something that will get immediate results. We don't want to wait for God to resolve matters in his good time because his idea of good time is seldom in sync with ours. I think we see this in the story. We see this with Herod, right? We think, boy, if I'm God, I'm actually, honestly, if I'm John, I'm thinking, God, why didn't you bring justice to Herod before he killed my brother? You know, ultimately, we don't know why that didn't happen. We don't know why God doesn't answer all prayer. We don't know why he moves in the way he does, why he killed Herod later rather than sooner. We don't know. To know would to be to know the mind of God fully, and none of us can know that. What we do know is that we're called to prayer, that you are called to pray, that I am called to pray that we are called to pray as a family. And that's what we can be responsible for. You know, I, sometimes I feel like we reserve certain prayers for God. We like the big prayers, but we leave the little prayers on the side because he doesn't care about those. He's a busy guy, you guys know. I was really convicted about that this week. And so I was praying. I, oh, I don't have a watch on, that's helpful. I, uh, I, I've got this friend of mine who's not a Christian. I spend all, I love you all. This is great, but you're all Christian. <laughs> and I have to make an effort to hang out with people who aren't Christian because as a pastor, it's really easy to get into a bubble. Imagine if everyone you worked with was Christian and your whole work week was hanging out with Christians. Okay? That's my life. I know most of you don't have that life. That's my life. So I have to make an effort to hang out with non-Christians. So one of my non-Christian friends invited me uh, to, to come see him perform some stand-up comedy. And I was like, great, I'll come watch you at a bar in Portland. That sounds great. And then uh, he asked me to come and do, they were doing an open mic afterwards and he wanted me to do a set, a three minute set. And I said, I mean, sure, I'll, I'll come with you and do a three minute set. And so then he texted me yesterday. He goes, hey man, so excited for tonight. By the way, did you sign up for the set? And I was like, no, you didn't tell me there was a sign up. I thought it was just kind of a show up thing. He goes, oh no, no, you gotta text, you gotta text the lady. I'm like. How? What lady? Help, like, help me here. And so he like, gives me her Facebook information. I send her a message. She doesn't respond. He, te- he messages her. He's like, hey, my buddy wants to come and do a set. Can he perform? And she's like, we're full. It's like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. I'm just going to go. I'm really there to see my buddy. But I'm thinking about this sermon. So last night, as I'm driving to the bar, I'm thinking, Lord, it would be really cool if you opened up a spot on the list somehow. I walked in, and I saw the gal from Facebook fame, <laughs> and I said, hi, I'm Daniel. She goes, Daniel Golder, I put you on the list. Isn't that awesome? That's great. That is such a minor thing, such a minor thing. And we see God moving. We can pray. You know, um, I mentioned it earlier uh, today is International Women's Day. And I know it's not a big holiday in America. It's what I grew up with. I, I love it. 
Um, and uh, it's interesting, the origins of this, this is celebrated by not all around the world, not every country, but lots of countries around the world take this as their day to celebrate women. And it's interesting because the origins of it, it started out because of a textile fire that happened in a factory in New York. And they used to lock women in these factories so that they would stay and they'd work. And something like 130 women died in a fire because they couldn't get out of the building. Just tragic. And so now, around the world, every March 8th, we celebrate women. We honor women. We thank God for women. And we think about the injustice that women have endured for centuries. Not, I mean, historically, yeah, I mean, it's 2020. This is the centennial year. It's been 100 years since women have been allowed to vote in this country. It's only been 100 years. There's places all the way around the, like, around the world where women are kept from education, from driving, that are held as sex slaves. Like, there is so much work, so much justice to be done. And as the church, we pray against injustice. We care about this. We clasp our hands to rise up against the disorder of this world. And so today, uh, well, this week, I want us to find something to pray about. An injustice in the world. I'm really paying attention to how we're teaching our daughter Eden to pray, right? Because we do a bedtime prayer every night. And often, a lot of the requests are about her day. or uh, She prays that we would have a good time all the time. I think that's the most important thing. And help us have a good time tomorrow, Lord. And... I, I want to start adding in prayers of petition against injustice in this world. I just want to encourage you, find something in the world, something you care about, and rise up against it in prayer. For today, though, we really want to honor the women who are here. Could all the ladies stand, please? You ladies, too, yes. All girls, all ladies. Can I just say, as a family, we are so grateful for all of you. We're so grateful for everything you do, for all that you do, for who you are, from what we learn from you, from how you lead, from how you love, how you serve, how you guide and correct and challenge, and we're just honored to know you. So... Brothers, let's reach out a hand and let's pray for these women right now. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us as a family with such incredible godly women, women after your own heart. Lord, we thank you for how you're moving through them to love and, and really change this community, both our church and this city. Lord, we pray that this week you would bless each one and they would experience your blessing as your presence in their life. Thank you, Father, for blessing us as a community with such incredible people who seek you and know you and are after your heart. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful. Amen. Amen. Guys, let's stand up and join the ladies in standing. We're going to spend some time
worshiping together. Um, it, it is such a joy to gather every week and go to the tables together and be united in verse and chorus and melody and heart together as a family. I want to encourage you now, pray, engage with God. Prayer is talking to God. I was listening to this guy who started a 24-7 prayer movement, and he's saying, I'm actually not that big a fan of prayer, but I'm a huge fan of Jesus. So I end up talking to him a lot. And that's what we get to do. And right now, we're going to open up the tables as we sing. There's bread and there's cup. You take the bread, you dip it in the wine or the juice, and we remember our Lord. We remember what he's done. We remember that we're set free because of who he is. So the tables are open. Let's, uh, let's stand, let's sing, and pray together.